Good morning, ministers. We have a number of families out today due to various sicknesses. Be praying for our church family. We don't believe that it was anything that came from our gathering together since most of them seem to know where their symptoms came from and so we're grateful for that. I was looking at the percussionist as he was playing the, I guess we call that a drum set, and he had his shoes off. And it reminded me of when I was a young preacher. When I used to go up into the pulpit to preach, I used to take my shoes off and preach barefoot. Don't know why, it just felt good. In the book of Acts chapter nine, we read of the dramatic conversion of Paul the Apostle. The story is that Saul, who became Paul, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. And he went to the high priest. And Paul asked the high priest for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Now as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responded and said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. And so the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, Saul was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And then in the meantime, while Paul was blind and Paul was fasting, Jesus Christ instructed one called Ananias to go down and to minister to Saul. And verse 17 of the book of Acts chapter 9 says that Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately something like fish scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. What a dramatic conversion. How often do you imagine Paul pondered this episode throughout the rest of his life? How many times do you imagine that Paul recounted the story of his conversion 
to others as he testified of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. How often? How often do you imagine Saul, Paul the apostle, asked Jesus that same question that he inquired of Christ at that faithful day? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? This is the question that marks and should continuously mark the prayer life of every child of God from conversion to this present day. Who are you, Lord? You would think that by now, after so many years of serving Christ, so many years of following Christ, you would assume that Paul would know who Jesus is. You would think that this is the kind of question reserved for those who are new to the faith, for novices, but no. It's Paul the apostle still asking, who are you, Lord? Jesus Christ disclosed his person to Paul on that road to Damascus. But the brilliance and the light of Christ's appearance blinded Paul so that Paul never really got a good look at who Jesus is. He never got the chance to ask any follow-up questions or to talk with Jesus at length. Christ appeared, Paul was blinded. He was blind to the appearance of Christ, but he heard God's voice. He couldn't see God, but he felt the Lord dismount him from his stallion. He heard Christ, he felt Christ, but he didn't see Christ. He didn't truly know Christ. Even though Jesus introduced himself to Paul, Paul could still genuinely testify over 14 years later that he still doesn't know Christ very well. And this becomes the primary lesson that Paul passes along to the saints at the church in Philippi in our text today. Paul's heart cry becomes the hallmark and the first mission for every child of God to know Jesus. Just like so many millions of people dropped everything this past week, running to get their ticket, hoping that they would win the Mega Millions jackpot, $1.28 billion, I know. People drop everything to get their tickets, to stand in long lines at their opportunity to win big. Coincidentally, somebody in Illinois was the only winner. People dropped everything. Some people left work early. Some people failed to go and pick up their children from daycare, going to get their ticket, going to get their chance. Paul the Apostle dropped everything to grab hold of Jesus Christ. Paul emptied his life of all of its meaning. Paul deemed his personal endeavors and ambitions of far inferior consequence to this one singular goal to know Jesus. And it is my prayer today that as we consider Paul's quest, that maybe you and I will hear Paul's words and we can hear the groaning that also haunts our own souls. 
And that you and I will be encouraged to believe that though we have come to know Jesus somewhat, there is still so much more to know of him. Still so much to come to understand. That you might be encouraged to believe that knowing Jesus Christ better is a real possibility and that it is Christ's desire for you to draw closer and to drink more deeply from the well of his goodness, the well of his glory, the well of his grace. Paul cries in the book of Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 that I may know him. That's all I want to do. That's all my life is about, Paul says. I'm not looking for religion. I'm not searching for myself. I'm not searching for my own meaning. I want to know who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ means. Furthermore, I want to know what it is like to be Christ. Hold on to your seat with that one. I want to know what it feels like to be Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The knowledge Paul speaks of here is not a head knowledge. It is not a conceptual or a theoretical knowledge. The word knowledge here is translated as to be an intimate acquaintance, a genuine and a deep recognition of the face of Jesus Christ. This word translated literally means sexual intercourse. That's how intimate it is. We understand that it is through the act of a man and a woman coming together, they become, the Bible says, one person. This is what Paul the Apostle is after, to know Jesus Christ to the point where he and Christ become one and the same. Paul in Christ, Christ in Paul. By the way, that's what Jesus Christ prayed for us. In the book of John chapter 17 verse 22, where he prays to the Father and he says, the glory which you have given to me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that we may be one. Oneness. That's what Jesus Christ has in store for all of us, has in mind for each one of us, that we would become one with him. This is what it means to truly know Jesus, to, take up into his, to be taken up into his glory, to rest in him. It means for Jesus Christ to be so sanctified in our hearts that nothing else of my earthly existence matters nearly as much. Paul wants to know Jesus in the same way that Jesus Christ knew his father. But how well did Jesus know the Father? How well did Jesus know God? Jesus Christ knew the Father so well that when Philip makes the ultimate request in John chapter 14 verse 8 asking Jesus to show us the Father, Philip has become exasperated. Jesus saying, where I'm going you know and the way you know and you know. Philip says, no we don't know. Just show us the Father, Jesus. 
Jesus knows the Father so well that he responds to Philip and he says this, have I been with you for such a long time and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? The one who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, we all understand our theology and our doctrine, so it doesn't surprise most of us to hear Jesus say those words. When you see me, you've seen the Father. That's not very surprising. We believe that. But it requires a certain amount of confidence for us to recognize the possibility that we can come to know Jesus Christ in such a way that we can say the same. When you have seen me, you have seen Christ. To see me is to see Christ. To experience me is to experience Jesus Christ. This is the kind of knowledge that Paul is crying out for. Knowledge that leads to oneness with Jesus. Paul the Apostle desires to know what Jesus knows. Paul the Apostle desires to see what Jesus sees and to experience what Christ himself has experienced. Paul wants to know Jesus by experiencing the power of his resurrection. In its simplest and most agreeable form, Paul desires to know what it feels like. Listen to this. Paul desires to know what it feels like to be raised from the dead. I want to know the power of your resurrection. We preach about it all the time. We confess the resurrection in our prayers and hopefully we confess the resurrection to our friends. But what is the resurrection? What does resurrection truly consist of? When I'm at home cutting on my computer, I push that little button and I sit there and wait. Maybe it's just that my computer is old. But my computer takes about four to six minutes to actually come on. It just sits there booting and booting and booting. And often I'm sitting there looking at my computer, tapping my foot thinking, what does it have to do to come on? If I press the button on the television, it just comes on. I don't have to wait for anything. Why does my computer have to go through this process? And what does that process entail? I don't know. That's what Paul is saying. What, I understand Jesus, that you raised physically and bodily from the dead, but what did that process entail? I want to understand the power of the resurrection. I want to experience this power. Paul wants to know the process of resurrection and he wants to know it intimately, personally, and thoroughly. But death and suffering must always precede resurrection. And this becomes the rub for many believers. Because one cannot truly come to know the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection until she completely dies to herself. That's the rub. Paul wants to know Jesus Christ and, his and, and the power of his resurrection through, he says, 
through the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Hmm. That first part sounds real exciting. The power of his resurrection. This second part causes a bit of consternation in many, many hearts. Paul wants to fellowship with Christ's suffering. Paul wants to be conformed to the death of Jesus Christ. That was a painful death. That was a troubling experience and Paul is saying that he voluntarily wants to enlist to experience that suffering to be conformed to that death. Because Paul knows that without death, there is no rising from the dead. Paul wants to live in resurrection power as Jesus lives. And so Paul recognized that he has to die to this present life as Jesus died. Now Paul is not suicidal here, we're not talking about that. Paul is not asking, Paul is not desiring to die a physical death, even though eventually he and we will. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, Paul wants to go through the process of death while he yet lives. Hmm. And when you read the previous verses, verses one through nine, you become to, come to realize that that is exactly, essentially, what Paul has already done by letting go of his identity, by letting go of his history, by letting go of all of his meaning, Paul has become like an invisible man. He has discarded every marker that identified him, every sign that made him who he was. Paul is in the process of self-diminishment, self-abandonment, self-denial. So much so to the point where within his own heart there is a silence and a stillness that almost perfectly simulates the silence that is in the grave. How silent is the grave? Have you ever thought about that? If you've ever buried a loved one, I'm sure you've had that thought cross your mind. What is it like to have dirt thrown over you in the, in the, in the darkness? How silent is the grave? How completely still? No noisy thoughts. No hint of a feeling, no sign of movement at all. Not even the slightest indication of a quiet breeze, silence. And this is possibly the most accurate descriptor of death itself, silence. Silence and stillness. It is only through this silence and stillness that one can come to know Jesus Christ intimately. 
interior life has been quieted, when the ego has been mastered and subdued, then there is only silence. And what precedes this death is a suffering that is akin to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Paul is in prison. And Paul has voluntarily undergone, undergone this sort of self-demise. And he's now being silenced by the world, locked away in a cage. Most of us will never know what it feels like to be silenced by the world. But all of us, as many of us as truly desire to know Jesus, we have, we will, or we are experiencing that voluntary annihilation. That voluntary burning down of the idol we call ourselves. And when we do this thoroughly, it produces suffering. It becomes the true challenge of the Christian faith and life, a challenge that often we fail to accept. Self-annihilation, self-diminishment. But to know Jesus Christ entails a self-silencing that reaches far beyond the rules by which I govern my life, far beyond the habits of religion. This self-silencing is a form of suffering that requires my full participation. But it is an option that I must choose to accept. To quiet down. To rid myself of my cares and of my worries. To reject my dreams and my ambitions. To let go of the things that have defined me. This is the silencing of my opinions. This is the dethronement of my own personal ambition. It is the rejection of my previous definition. It is my willing denial of my own existence. Say it again. It is my willing denial of my own existence. That sounds like something I'm making up. Paul the Apostle said, I am crucified with Christ. I don't even exist. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it is not me. I'm gone already. I don't exist anymore. I have been so caught up and consumed by the glory of Jesus Christ that the life I now live is not my own. It's Christ living through me. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. If 
somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul surmises, that if I give up everything that I am and allow myself to become dead for all intents and purposes, God will see me in the grave of my own making. And just like he did Jesus, God will cause me to rise again. That's where faith comes into play. Because my flesh says, listen Calvin, listen Calvin, if you die, you're not going to live again. This is it. If you die, if you deny yourself, Calvin, if you self-annihilate, you will live the rest of your life in limbo, having no real enjoyment, finding no real pleasure in this life or in this world. Don't do it, Calvin. That will be a horrible end for you. That's what the flesh says. But faith says, if I lay down my life for the sake of Jesus Christ, God will raise me from the dead. God will infuse me with new life, the life that is the very life of Jesus Christ himself. And then I will know him indeed. That's what faith says. Flesh says, and flesh convinces many believers that this idea of self-annihilation and self-denial is too great a gamble to take. Flesh says that if I can make it into heaven without going through all of that drama, then why bother with that? But the believer who truly desires the finer things of the kingdom of heaven, that person speculates that the price is worth all of the pain. If through this suffering, if through this death, I can come to know Jesus Christ, my Lord, all the more, it is worth the sacrifice. It becomes then, brothers and sisters, it becomes a matter of values and of priorities. How much do you value your relationship with Jesus? What is knowing Jesus Christ worth to you? What price are you willing to pay to get to know Jesus Christ in this more intimate way, the way of oneness? What are you willing to sacrifice? And Paul's transparency here is not for his own sake. Paul is not writing an autobiography for the purpose of making himself sound righteous or sound holier than thou. That's not the purpose. Paul is showing us the proper way to approach our walk with Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. Paul is hoping that these Philippians that he's writing to, who have run so well, are ready finally to partake of the deeper life that is in Jesus Christ. That they're ready to move beyond practices and protocols, human strategies and programmatic services. 
and come to live and experience life the way that Jesus did. Huh. And Paul admits that this suffering is not a one-time deal. But that this suffering, that this death should be part of the entire Not that I have already become perfect. Paul was not perfect. Even after writing the majority of the New Testament. Paul was not perfect even after fighting with lions in Ephesus. Not even after being stoned and dragged outside of the city as dead. No, Paul still says, I am still not perfect. There is yet more of Jesus Christ to know. There is yet more of Jesus Christ to experience, which has to mean that there remains yet more for me to suffer. Listen, listen. Each step, each rung up the ladder that leads to oneness with Jesus Christ is only achieved, brothers and sisters, by way of suffering. And each step requires new commitment to finding the answer to our ultimate question, who are you, Lord? And for this cause, despite the price that we have to pay, despite the price that Paul has to pay, he continues to press on. He says, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Jesus Christ. It's like a game of cat and mouse. Paul is riding on the road to Damascus and Jesus comes up behind him and taps him on the shoulder. Paul falls from his horse and he goes blind. He's looking around and he doesn't see anything, just a bright, bright light and he can't distinguish anything. And the voice speaks and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He goes three days into a house. He's fasting. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's pretty much traumatized, you can imagine. If you get knocked off a horse by something invisible and you're blinded by light, you're probably going to be just a little traumatized. And so here he sits for three days, unable to eat, unable to drink. This experience has blown his mind. Then Ananias comes and says, Paul, Jesus sent me to heal you and to baptize you. And, and, and the fish scales fall from his eyes. And Paul is not looking for Ananias. Paul is looking for that voice. Where is he? Hold on, Paul. Now he's invisible. You can't. No, no, no. I, no, he came and he knocked me off the horse and I saw him. No, no, Paul. You can't see God, uh, Paul. It's not like that. No, I saw him. He came and he. And the rest of his life. So dramatic was his conversion that the rest of his life he spent trying to see the one who touched him first. Somebody touched me. That's what the Christian life is supposed to be about. Somebody touched you one day. If you're a child of God today, somebody touched you. Jesus touched you. He didn't only touch you for you to say the sinner's prayer and then go on with life like nothing happened. No, you're supposed to be spiritually curious enough 
to say that day as I was standing in that church and I felt compelled in my soul to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, something, someone touched me. And I am determined for the rest of my life to pursue him until I see him face to face. That is the Christian life. Anything less than that is just religion. Somebody touched me and I want to see him. Ah. Brothers and sisters, this, this is it. It doesn't get any deeper than this. It doesn't get any bigger than this. It doesn't get any better than this. This is to be the pursuit of every child of God. This is why Paul had to diminish himself. This is why Paul had to get rid of his own ego. This is why Paul had to let go of his own definition because he didn't need anything hindering him in his hot pursuit. Jesus is very stealthy, you know. It's very quick. Now you see him, now you don't. You can't be bur burdened down, bogged down with this world's cares and find him. You must quiet yourself. You must die to yourself. So that within you there is silence. A pool of silence where Jesus Christ can come and dwell. With no other voices but his own. Huh. Huh. And the echo of his own glory being glorified in you. Jesus doesn't want to speak in my soul when I'm so busy talking all the time, when I'm so busy judging all the time, when I'm so busy giving my opinions all the time. I'm too cluttered with my own thoughts. Jesus says, die to yourself, die to your thoughts, die to your opinions, and let me speak. <sighs> and what you'll find is when you let Jesus speak, man, oh man, <laughs> when you stop thinking that you know, when you stop trying to figure it all out, just let Jesus talk. Now, Paul is in prison. Let me just say this. Paul is in prison. Paul is not doing a Bible study. Paul is not surrounded by the saints. Paul is not, doesn't belong to any particular church home. Paul is not out evangelizing. He's in prison, he's stuck. So when Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, there's nothing in particular religious that he's doing to get to know him better. The only thing Paul can possibly be doing is being still, knowing that he is God. Stillness. Prison was good for him. Prison was good for him. Sometimes God has to stop you so that you can be still. Sometimes God sends trouble into our lives so that we can be still. Sometimes God allows things to happen that totally stun us so that we can suspend our own imaginations, suspend our own opinions and be still. 
be filled with more questions than with answers. to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ wants to have an intimate relationship with each one of us. Jesus Christ desires more than anything to reveal himself to us. And the vehicle of his self-revelation is my suffering and my self-annihilation. And the question or the challenge the Holy Spirit would put to each of us this morning is simply this. How badly do you want to know Jesus? How badly do you want to know Jesus? What are you willing to lose in order to gain a more vivid and rich more, 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 more complete picture. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to let go of? Or do you think you've already achieved a sufficient vision of Christ? Have you become comfortable in your faith? Have you become distracted by the cares of this world? Are you satisfied with what you have come to know of him? If so, allow Paul the Apostle this morning to introduce you to the finer things. What you know is not enough. What you've come to understand of Jesus Christ is not enough. Let Paul introduce you to the finer things. Hmm. Allow the Holy Spirit to reignite your holy curiosity. Allow the Holy Spirit to reignite your holy appetite for things that are above. Allow him to change your focus from looking at this world or trying to find satisfaction in this world, in your family, in your job, through your church that you might refocus your attention on Jesus Christ alone. Make him the center of your vision, the center of your focus, the center of your desire. Paul says, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. Yet, he says, not yet. But one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul is leaving the past behind, every past victory, every past spiritual achievement, both before and even after conversion. Every day for Paul is a new day. And every day requires again that Paul voluntarily relieve himself of himself, of his thoughts, of his opinions. Every day requires that Paul once again abandon himself so that he can press on without the encumbrance and without the obstacles of his own making. He 
This morning, Paul the Apostle clears the spiritual deck once again. And like a newborn baby cries out, Abba, Father. Like a newborn baby. Every day is a new race. And it is a race that Paul and we are determined to win. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what? That was Paul's only goal in life. There was no competing interest. His only goal was to run in such a way that he would receive the prize. And that prize for Paul was simply to know Jesus. That's all. Therefore, Paul concludes, all who are mature, what a word, all who are mature, let's have this attitude. And if, any, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. That's a high compliment that Paul just gave the church there. Paul believed there are a lot of mature Christians in Philippi. He says, therefore, all of you who are mature, all of you who are tired of playing marbles with the spirit, all of you who are tired of playing checkers and you're ready to play spiritual chess, all of you who are ready for a promotion in the spirit, all of you who have mastered the doctrines and the theologies, all of you, who are ready for this new adventure, who are ready for this new quest, have this attitude. The attitude of self-surrender, the attitude of self-denial, the attitude of self-annihilation, with the vision of coming to know Jesus Christ more and better. Everyone who is mature should view this as the ultimate goal of life, to become one with Jesus Christ. Let us all hunger, let us all thirst after Jesus the way that Paul the Apostle describes in this text. And when you do it right, when you have truly abandoned yourself, you will find that the things that you are worrying about will no longer even bother you. There is a place in Jesus Christ where your worries and your concerns do not even exist. <laughs> there is a place in Jesus Christ where the troubles of this world have gone away. But it requires your participation. It requires you to say, you know what? Whatever meaning I have had, whatever desires I have had, whatever comfort I have found in this world, I reject it, I let it go. I don't want it anymore, I want Jesus. My heart will not rest till it rests in him. Now that is some meat for you. I should make most of us realize that this life that we're living and we're calling it Christianity and we're calling it this, that should make most of us realize that many of us are very far from 
actually doing Christianity the right way. We think too much, we worry too much, we talk too much, we judge too much, we do too much. And there is no silence within us. There is no dying going on within us. All of our emotions, all of our feelings, all of our prejudices, all of our biases are alive and well. I've been saying this for years to us, I'll continue to say it, that we have come to the wall and Christ is saying it is time for you to make a choice. Either you're going to stay here, twiddling your thumbs, your spiritual thumbs, going through the motions, always frustrated and depressed and filled with anxiety, or you're going to finally let go. Let go of your ego, let go of your worry, let go of your fear. Turn your back on your own self and I will find you. <laughs> he doesn't find you as quickly as you want him to, we'll find you. You have to stay there in that place of limbo, kind of off balance for a while, but he'll find you. If you let go and you just walk off the cliff, don't worry, he's gonna catch you. You're not gonna be like the road runner. The road runner has to get to the cliff and runs off the cliff and pew! No, you're not gonna When you walk off the cliff, he's gonna catch you. When by faith you walk away from yourself, I gotta say that again. When by faith you walk away from yourself, from your history, from your family, from your ideas and your opinions, when you walk away from you, in pursuit of Jesus, you will find him. You will not find him doing it your own way. You will not find him following your own opinion. You will only find him when you let go. And let God. This sermon today is for the spiritually ambitious. This sermon today is for those who are tired of just walking around on the peripheries of the kingdom and you're ready to get involved. You're ready to become one with him, to merge with him. Now, I'm not talking about my, my imagination, to merge with Christ, to experience the oneness of being in Christ. If you haven't experienced that, just know that it's out there. And the only thing that keeps you from experiencing it is your own self and your unwillingness to let go. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a tall order. But how exciting it is to know that right now, even right now, you are in hot pursuit of me. It is my prayer, it is our prayer today that by your Holy Spirit you would shine a light into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls, and that you, as the scripture has said, will show us those things that are hindering us from being in hot pursuit of Jesus Christ alone. We sang the song earlier that we're prone to wander, and it's so true. 
The cares of this life make it so difficult to focus on you alone. But always you and our problems, always you and our family, always you and our future. It seems that you never get to hold the stage in our hearts all by yourself. It seems that we're never able to fully sanctify you in our hearts and in our minds. And for that, we repent. And we ask you that by the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that you will reinvigorate us, that you will reignite our holy imaginations and our holy curiosity and cause us once again to chase after you, to lay down everything that is us, everything that is ours, and to pursue your will for our lives with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.